Hey listeners, welcome to Akio Politics, a podcast about politics in the world of Harry Potter. I'm Erin. And I'm Adri. We're two recovering English majors. Today, we'll be discussing the politics of pedagogy in Chapter 8, The Potions Master of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling. Adriana's turn to give us a summary of events in this chapter. So, Adri, take it away. So, chapter eight is one of those chapters that lays the foundation for fur- further things to come in this series. We get an introduction to Hogwarts, the passages, Mr. Filch, teachers like McGonagall, uh, Professor Benz, Snape, and then So when we get to the potions uh, master, a.k.a. Professor Snape, we see that he likes Slytherins and not Harry Potter that much, but we don't quite know yet why. Uh, And Harry's just puzzled that someone could hate him so much without even knowing him. Uh, We learned that Professor Quirrell is not very good at his job and he's scared of everything. And that McGonagall is basically like what I was when I was a teacher, super strict. And then the, <laughs> they go down to Hagrid's cabin for rock cakes and tea and find out that Gringotts has been broken into. That's it. <laughs> Perfect. It's not necessarily an action-packed chapter, but there's a lot of subtext in chapter eight, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're framing our chapter analysis through the politics of pedagogy and teaching methods. But what do we mean by that? Teaching isn't just standing in front of a group of people and spouting off memorized facts. Teaching and the pedagogical examination of teaching or being a teacher might ask questions like, What methods are employed for assessing student work? Or how is feedback given for students? Pedagogy is simply the study or methods of teaching. Adriana, what are your thoughts? So for me, pedagogy is the thing that shapes the lives of most people who will be inhabiting your world. It infects the worldview that people still hold to this day. Uh, sometimes even the lack of education also affects affects people, and teachers really don't get enough credit for the social work they do. So what does it make you think of, Adriana? What does the politics of pedagogy um, speak to you in terms of personal experiences? Well, obviously, we've discussed this in probably every episode we've have had thus far. I <laughs> I worked as a teacher right out, right out of school and in many ways it was the most rewarding job I've ever had but also the most challenging. There was a lot of red tape. I worked for a private school and sometimes the problem wasn't really the students, it was the administrative side of teaching because there are certain things you can and cannot do according to the rules of institutions. Um, so when I started out, I was so young. I was 23 and I looked literally like I was 13. Um, <laughs> so, so to overcompensate for that feeling of 
holy shit, I look like my students, right? I thought that being strict was the best way to command respect because that's the way my mother, who is also a teacher, taught me to be a teacher. So I was kind of very like unsmiling a la Minerva McGonagall slash Snape. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure to this day, some kids fucking hate me. Like, there's no way. If they saw you turn a corner, they might run. They'd be like, oh, (laughs) that bitch. Like, she was... I taught middle school mostly, right? So... so, God bless you. Yeah. So I had these ninth ninth graders who were fucking hilarious. Like, the things they would say to try to get me to crack were just, like, SNL-type skits, right? And I would just have to stand in front of, like... 24 students all trying to make me laugh or divert the subject into something else other than what we were discussing and it took every ounce of my willpower to be like no 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 you cannot laugh you cannot laugh because then you lose power you know um but teaching is a very social component right so it it, there's nothing like standing in front of a group of students and and teaching and using all these methods and, and seeing how this can impact their lives. Most of these kids are now in college, which makes me feel like an ancient troll. Um, oh, yes. And and I, you know, so I'm, I'm friends with some of them on Facebook or I follow their Twitters and they've grown up to be in many ways exactly what I expected them to be because I saw them in the formative years of like being 13 and 14 right and in many other ways they've surprised me with what like how how smart they are and how eloquent they are and sometimes also how funny they are like they're still very funny um it but the reality is not everyone's cut out for teaching and I think Snape as we will see later on may maybe one of those people as was I in the end there's so much of what you just said that I want to play off of and the first being um that you taught at a private school which I think is really interesting because Hogwarts in itself is a kind of private school and this came up in the comment section of our Facebook page and if you're not following Occupolitics on Facebook, please do, and all of our social pages. We're hilarious. We post awesome photos and images, quotes from the podcast, our pets. So visit us and on our on our website at occupolitics.com and, and follow us. But someone pointed out that there's a politics behind this idea of private school. And I think that I'm, you know, this is something that I'm interested in following later, especially, you know, with what you're saying about there being a a certain set of rules as opposed to other schools. And maybe there's something that we can talk about in that with regards to Hogwarts, but also I too, as listeners have probably picked up on was a teacher and it was the most self-reflexive job I've ever had. I was constantly, you know, I would go, I would teach my class and I would come back and it would be like a mini therapy session for myself in which I would deconstruct the class minute by minute and try to figure out, okay, did did I say the right thing there? You know, um, did I explain that clearly enough? You know, was I, was I showing a lot of bias there? Because to your point, Adriana, it 
impacts a lot of people and the way that we teach and the teachers that we have in our lives, we carry that with us in ways that we may not even be aware of all throughout life. And so teaching changed me. It was a transformative experience and one that I would gladly step back into, but I'm interested in talking about teaching methods and pedagogy in this chapter, because in so many ways, Adriana, this is a very personal chapter for me. And a lot of what Harry experiences are things that I myself have experienced and not in uh, elementary, middle or high school, but in higher education when I was in, you know, college getting my bachelor's and master's degrees. So this is a, this is a really interesting chapter for me. All right. So Aaron, speaking to that, how do we see the politics of pedagogy and teaching methods operating within this chapter? So we obviously see it with the classes themselves and the teachers, but I want to introduce this idea of Hogwarts itself, the physical building, as a pedagogical tool because students aren't getting to classes the way that I got to classes. It's not so, you know, it's not so easy to get from the dormitory of Gryffindor to the potions class. Stairs are moving, portraits require passwords, ghosts are pulling pranks. Um, This idea of having to kind of struggle to get to your education, I think is something that, um, a lot of people in developed countries maybe can't relate to, um, but I think it's a very unique um, obstacle that Hogwarts presents its students with, that the classes themselves and the concepts themselves are difficult, but on top of that, getting entry into those classes Getting entry anywhere within the building requires critical thinking, requires, you know, kind of a a quick nature and quick witted, quick wittedness. Um, So I, I, I kind of saw Hogwarts as operating as a possible teaching method or pedagogical tool. Ooh, I like that because when I was listening to you talk about it, what, what struck me the most, Erin, was thinking about how maybe the journey to the class is part of the teaching or like part of the experience, right? Because we know yes, that, yes. we know that the wizarding world does not follow the same rules as the muggle world. And whereby having uh, this physical space that is always changing and requires a lot of thought and, uh, and alertness, right? Is enabling young wizards to navigate the wizarding world once they exit Hogwarts. Not just the classes, but Hogwarts itself as a living creature is teaching these young witches and wizards how to actually navigate wizarding spaces. So beautifully put. And may I just inject a contemporary (laughs) position and say that I feel that this is something that is missing from our current academics, regardless of grade level, that there isn't enough connection back to a lived experience and enough skill sets put forward, um, on life skills. We see this too, when we talk about the idea of teaching to the test, you know, people in our country will, in America will be able to relate to this. Um, 
this idea of having experiential knowledge in addition to book knowledge, I think, Adriana, is something that we're going to continue to talk about in chapters to come and in books to come. Oh, definitely. I mean, sometimes I wish there had been um, a life skills class that taught me budgeting, uh, taxes, things like... Adulting 101. Adulting (laughs) 101. (laughs) Definitely. So for me, how I see it, and I love how you see it as like Hogwarts being this entity that is teaching students, right? I want to kind of delve a little bit deeper into that notion by looking at the teachers themselves, right? So... Most of these books, uh, since they follow the boarding school adventure trope, are set in a school. But what happens in schools? Well, teaching and adventures, right? But so we hear, <laughs> so we hear about uh, different teachers, most notably McGonagall, my personal fave, <laughs> Quirrell <laughs> and Snape. We also hear about Professor Binns, which is like hilarious because he's a ghost who teaches history. It's just a perfect representation of that subject. I love Professor Benz's story. Yeah, I love his story. And then we see that McGonagall's whole thing is that she's strict, but has kind of a benevolent uh, side to those who are worthy, like Hermione, which is like, yes, that's, this is all, I'm about all of this. And... Would you say that you were benevolent with students that you liked during your time as teacher in that in that specific period? Too, def, yeah, too much. I think like if <laughs> like if they if if I thought they were bright, I did expect a little bit more from them. And when they did let me down, being young, I was kind of like, no, you got to give me your all, you know. Um, same. I feel bad for that, but yes, same uh, for me. But it's, I think, honestly, it's because I saw a little bit of myself in them, and, and that's and that's super narcissistic, but I think everyone does it. I know I did. I know I did. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm like you, Adriana. I, I love following my former students on social media because I'm just like, you guys are so bright and beautiful and wonderful. And did I have even an iota to do with that? Maybe is my ego showing? Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I, I sometimes I'm like, they probably don't even remember who I am, but I do remember who they are, you know? And then they like one of your photos and they're like, you really remember me. Yeah, I live on forever. <laughs> I will live on through you. Uh, anyway, some of them, <laughs> which is so, uh, some of them actually. Uh, so they they're going. To, some of them are going to the same undergrad I went to back home, and some of them are actually English majors, like I was. And I was like, "You guys, you're gonna have the same professor as I did," you know. So it's like, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so I'm I'm just it's just a narcissistic thing really. Like this is why you know I'm not cut out to be like a teacher in the same like devotional way other people feel a calling because I enjoy my narcissism a bit too much. It is what it is. Same. It's my same. It's my Taurus nature. It's my Taurus nature. Well, that leads us nicely to our next section, which is how the structure of the muggle muggle and wizarding world begins to reveal itself to us in this chapter. So, Adriana, how does it begin to reveal to us in in chapter eight? What do we see here? 
I mean, you know how I'm obsessed with physical spaces, right? So you spoke about Hogwarts being alive and all this thing. So it's like, yes, this is very different from the muggle world, right? <laughs> and also, I'm pretty sure the subjects that are taught in Hogwarts are not being taught in the muggle world. The magical subjects have like this really funny way of being both futuristic because of the magical aspects of them and archaic because of the roots. Uh, we hear the portraits move and they visit each other. So portraits are is something like archaic, but the movement implies some kind of progress and futuristic element to it. And then the castle seems to be alive. And then a castle is something archaic, but being alive feels current, right? And so it's it's kind of like this mis mismatch of things and concepts that I find just very attractive. What about you, Erin? Mm, I'm vibing off of everything that you're saying, and especially this idea of the classes kind of combining modernity with more arcane or archaic knowledge, because it's not like we're at Hogwarts where we have tablets and Apple products and cell phones. This is very removed from the muggle world in that sense. And so you don't see computers, you don't see the technology that you would see in our contemporary classrooms today. Instead, you know, you see, for example, three, they had to study the night skies through their telescopes every Wednesday at midnight and learn the names of different stars, the movements of the planets. And that's incredible. I, I didn't even get that kind of experience. You know, I, I didn't, I, I know the names of the planets. Uh, oh yes. Kudos for me. <laughs> the names of all of the stars and, and, and spending time to study them and understand their movements. You know, that's, that's not an education that I was privy to. Were you? Oh, no, definitely not. And granted, we have the technology now, and, and certainly students do as well, to go to Google Earth and look up something like that and get a 3D, you know, image of, 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 that, of that. But I really like this idea of Hogwarts as this defiance of time and space where old world knowledge and new world knowledge kind of come together in this very pleasant mix yeah it's almost as if magic is kind of the glue that holds arcane and modern modernity together mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and for me that structure kind of comes out in hogwarts as you were saying earlier this idea of this you know boarding school it's not like any boarding school that we've you know seen um even from the, the feasts and the opulence that are provided to the students, I'm sure that there are very well-to-do private schools out there in the world, but the degree to which um, the Hogwarts students are sort of um, privy to these resources and abundance that, that we wouldn't see in muggle schools. is where we look at two quotes from the chapter that speak to today's politics, which is pedagogy and th teaching methods. And we're going to read them and analyze them in this vein. Erin, would you do us the honors? 
Absolutely. So my quote comes on page 141. This is when Harry is at Hagrid's cottage with Ron um, and he's discussing his day. And he says, quote, Harry told Hagrid about Snape's lesson. Hagrid, like Ron, told Harry not to worry about it, that Snape liked hardly any of the students. But he really seemed to hate me, said Harry. And so I, I chose this section because, like I said earlier, this chapter is kind of personal for me um, because I have had teaching experiences like Harry where I have been on the receiving end of a lot of confusing hatred might be too strong of a word, but derision perhaps is a good example. Um, and there's this idea almost of hazing, uh, of having to be so strict or so confrontational or so aggressive with your students that it's like Darwinian sink or swim, you know, evolve or, or die off. And so this quote really interests me because we see back to Adriana's point at the beginning of the episode, we see the lasting effects of Snape's, Snape's pedagogy on Harry. He's internalized this um, derision that he experienced in the classroom, and he wants to know why Snape, why Snape hates him. And if we think about the teaching methods that are employed here, Harry's expending energy not on retaining the subject matter of Snape's class, but on that personal confrontation and those personal feelings that he had leaving the class and during the class. And so as students and as teachers, you know, it is a deeply social interaction and we are greatly impacted by that. Uh, when I was getting um, my master's degree, I was in a class in a classroom with a professor that I trusted, but found out during the course of the semester that that, but I'm not sure that that was, I came to find out that that was not necessarily a reciprocated feeling. And during um, one of our classes, we were discussing some very um, intense subject matter and it, it did get personal. And um, I, I made a statement that was, in my opinion, misinterpreted by another student and the argument got personal. It, it left the tax and it got personal. And I was looking to that professor to step in to bring it back to the tax and to interject and to be that barrier. And, and, and that didn't happen. And to this day, I am still sort of scarred by that, by that, um, by that lack of, by that absence. I don't know what a better word for that is, but Harry, again, he is affected. It's not that he, you know, it's not that what happened in Snape's classroom existed in a vacuum. He, he left with that feeling. And, and again, if we think about the effectiveness of Snape's pedagogy, it probably wasn't that effective in, in getting students to retain information. Would you agree, Adriana, or disagree with that? I would agree because it seems like everything he does is based on imposing fear on his students. And while fear can be a good short-term motivator for success, I don't think it's a long-term strategy. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I think it has a short-term effect of getting students to fall in line. We see a student like Hermione who's at the edge of her seat trying to prove that she has this knowledge to Professor Snape, but instead, you know, he's choosing to pick on Harry and belittle Harry. And so how did Hermione leave that class? Is she still inspired and sitting at the edge of her seat wanting to prove that knowledge? Or has she 
been deflated because she's seen the dynamics of this class and she understands now that it's not about what she knows. It's about you know, what this professor ego is going to dictate. Oh yes, definitely. I don't think Hermione left that class thinking I must, uh, I must prove myself next time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, what about you? What are, what are your thoughts? Where did you pick up on this chapter? Well, if you want, we can go to my quote, which is kind of related to your thoughts on this. So my quote comes in pa- on page 139 of my version, and it's Snape uh, confront- confronting Harry after someone ha- someone next to Harry has an accident with a potion. And I believe it's Neville. That's right. Yes. So, or Neville. So Snape barges at Harry and says, you Potter. Why didn't you tell him not to add the quills? Thought he'd made you look good if he got it wrong, did you? That's another point you've lost for Gryffindor. And here we see, not only does Snape have absolute contempt for students, but he needs, he has this like pathological need to show he's in control and he has power, which kind of reminds me of me like being 23 years old going like, I look like a sissy. I must show that I'm in control, you know? Um, And he's trying to get students in line on the first date, which I, while I do appreciate, because the thing about teaching, specifically if you're not just substitute teaching, if you're teaching the same group of students for one whole year, what you learn is that if you're not strict with them the very first day and then, like, loosen up as the semester goes along they will run over you. And I definitely learned that my first semester teaching during my master's degree. I had a student in one of my 111 classes email me, hey, homie, I wanted to eat a bullet. It was just like, what the fuck have I done? I can't believe that I have created a culture in which one of my students would think that it's okay to email me, hey, homie. And Granted, I think I think this is a special case. I think this is a particularly immature student. Oh yes, I, this is what I tell myself and I do go to sleep. But <laughs> but it was this idea, Adriana, of I didn't establish my authority at the beginning of the semester and I paid the price later. And so I also want to introduce this idea though of teaching as being a performative act. Mm-hmm. And is Snape putting on a performance? Are we actually seeing the real Snape? You know, that's something that Harry's not taking into consideration as he's licking his wounds in Hagrid's cottage. But it's very much, it's very possible that what Snape's pedagogy is, is also rooted in, in a sense of self-preservation. So it's, it, while it is true that Snape is, is probably putting on a performance, you also have to consider your audience, right? So these are 11-year-olds, and certainly 11-year-olds need discipline and structure, but they, what they don't need is contempt, right? And that's what Snape is great at, is treating students with contempt. Because we see McGonagall is still strict, but commands a room with just by walking, you know, and by talking and and in a way, the way that she addresses students, you can tell she expects a lot from them, but that she still respects them. 
But when Snape speaks to students, specifically Gryffindors and Harry, you could see this contempt just oozing off of him because there's just something that does not, he does not like these students that have done nothing to him. And I want to pick up on this point, too, because it it relates back to the politics of pedagogy, that he treats a student or a group of students differently from other groups of students. And that is not okay in the classroom. But Adriana, you and I both know, and we've already talked about it in this episode, teaching is also a very human act. And Preferences can get developed, favorites can be had, and you, you know, again, it is self-reflexive, and so you try, you try not to let that come out into the classroom, but it, it can, and I know for me that it did, and I, I'm guilty of that, and I'm certainly guilty of uh, being in the position of being one of those, you know, quote-unquote favorite students, and of being, uh, you know, on the outskirts of that, too, and of feeling the just feeling how uncomfortable that is too, of not being a part of that liked or preferential group. And so I, I, I think that this segues um, into what character we see as representing the politics of, of pedagogy. And so Adriana, who is that for you? For me, that is Professor Minerva McGonagall. First, mm-hmm. first of all, she is hashtag goals. Like, she is yes she's my shiro you know i mean mm-hmm. so is hermione but minerva mcgonagall she is a goddess um i love that her pedagogy is rooted on being strict but this strict like being this strict serves a purpose and is not an abuse of power um that she expects so much from her students but also treats them as people and that once that she sees so like one of her students is kind of getting the hang of something, she just gives Hermione a rare smile. Like, yes, you have potential. Good for you, you know? Some like Snape would have been like, ugh, well, you did a halfway decent job. What do you want me to do? Give you a trophy, you know? Yeah, you did the bare minimum. What do you want? Like, congratulations. Exactly. What about you? For me, I think it's pretty obvious. It's Professor Snape, and he is hashtag triggering me um, in this <laughs> in this chapter. Um, you know, his pedagogy is not to be envied because it is rooted in this paradigm of uh, a power structure between those that are teaching and those that are taught. And I also think that a pedagogy that I identify with is that you know, teaching is a very symbiotic relationship, whether you're with your students, or at least I think that it should be where you're learning as much from them as they are from you. And that makes you a better teacher. And Snape is so closed off. He is so, um, I feel like whatever performance he's putting on for his students and in this chapter out of self-preservation, it, it leaves him so isolated from his students that, for him to form any kind of relationship and for anyone to form a genuine or sincere interest in potions. And what, what a pity because we know that potions is this beautiful magic and it is this incredible skill set, but he's such a deterrent to that knowledge. And I, I, I also really, um, 
I'm bitter about that. I'm bitter about him (laughs) withholding that from his students. Well, and like I said earlier, not everyone is cut out to be a teacher, even if you have the ability to explain something to someone, you may not have the temperament. And just Snape does not... Snape, Snape strikes me as someone who is brilliant, but does not have the capacity to even impart that knowledge in a, in a constructive way, or has the patience to do this day in and day out. Well, and I think that for Snape so much of it too. And, and it's going to be difficult for me to talk about this because really we're not going to find out about a lot of this until later chapters, but I feel like I just want to put a pin in this idea of Snape as performing and as his teaching as a performative act, because so much of his positionality as a teacher is rooted in his personal experiences that haven't been great. And a lot of them happened within the the confines of Hogwarts. And so I feel like more than even just Snape not being cut out to be a teacher, he could potentially be a better teacher if it weren't for all these other factors at play um, that, that come from this space and come from the reminder that is Harry Potter. Definitely. So speaking of what happens in this chapter and what would happen in later chapters, what broader themes and or politics are you going to continue tracing as we move along? So for me, I'm coming back to a politic that you're interested in, Adriana, and it's this idea of the structures that separate the muggle world from the wizarding world. And I'm interested in this going back to something I talked about earlier, with Hogwarts Alive as a school. And it's, um, it's interesting to me that the building could in and of itself be political and that it could have intentions and that it could have desires that get enacted upon the students. And we're going to see that in later chapters, even in this book, but we won't get into them there. What about you, Adriana? Well, I want to keep examining the politics of community through the houses and how even teachers get into like this crazy rivalry between houses and and what that means and and how their values align with their own houses, right? Um, so it's like being in a gang, and, and I just want to continue to untangle those politics and, and how rivalries get formed and how uh, packs get forged. And I don't know, it's just, it's just ah, it's so much. <laughs> It's so much. It's so much. And each chapter that we get into, we're pulling more and more politics with us from previous chapters, and we're seeing more and more things that are coming ahead. So stay tuned, listeners, because there's a lot to be anticipated here. tweet comes to us from Francesca on Twitter. Francesca tweeted us, love your podcast, was a little disappointed by fat hatred towards Dudley in episode two. Rowling is problematic and lazy with fat equals evil. Will you address body issues with the politics of fat shaming or of bodies? I was disappointed that you laughed at his size. I felt like you were laughing at all fat people, like we are all greedy and mean, feeds into existing stereotypes. 
I'm asking this of you because I love your podcast and want to and want to continue engaging with it. All right. Thank you, Francesca, for the that string of very thoughtful and engaging tweets. Um, sometimes we listen or hear people that we genuinely like say things that disappoint us. And this is certainly the right way to call those people out on things that are disappointing. And we hear you. We want to be better for you and all our listeners. I, I'm really glad that Francesca points out the fact that rallying herself is problematic with this. And I think that I definitely fell into the authorial trap in chapter two in the way that rallying directs readers to think about Dudley and also the Dursleys in their physical appearance as equating them with greed and, and meanness. And it, as a recovering English major and an academic, it was lazy on our part Um to not read against that grain and to not push back. And so thank you, Francesca, for helping us to go back and be self-reflexive enough to reanalyze that section, reanalyze ourselves and reposition and make ourselves better. And, you know, and part of reading is questioning authorial intent. And we certainly didn't do that because our focus was admittedly a different one, but that is not an excuse to not push against the grain um, I've certainly always thought that it was problematic of Rowling to always ascribe uh, laziness and greed into uh, bigger bodies or bodies that do not reflect the so like society's quote unquote ideals. Um, and and we certainly just did not question that enough in episode two. Well, and listeners, we're going to continue to fuck up. We're going to continue <laughs> to make mistakes. We're going to continue to say things that are problematic. And we want you to continue to call us out on that. And we want to continue to have meaningful and constructive engagement with you guys on things that we say um, and things that happen in these chapters that maybe we don't pick up on. So, Francesca, you really did us a solid. Thank you. Yeah, we really do thank you. And part of the... Part of having this podcast and having this forum is that, you know, we're people like everyone else and we're just trying to do our best. And sometimes, like Aaron said, we're going to fuck up. That doesn't mean we don't want to be better. We certainly do. And we are striving to get rid of either internalized biases or things that we are unaware of that we were carrying around. And, and, you know, and I know that sometimes it's very disappointing to hear people that you otherwise like say unfortunate things that make you feel uncomfortable or make you feel like they don't understand what they're saying or it, it's just, it's really unfortunate. I certainly went through this with my, some of my professors during graduate school when they would say very unfortunate things about maybe the Latino community or Puerto Ricans or, or something that I identified with. And I know how much that colored my perception of those people moving forward. And I wish I had the power to say, hey, that wasn't cool. Let's have a discussion about that, right? So I am so grateful that you reached out to us because we want to be better people. We want to be better podcasters and engage 
with the text in a way that not only makes you think, but also is respectful of everyone. And with that, we will conclude. Thank you so much, Francesca, for your awesome tweet. And we hope that you engage with future episodes of Archaeopolitics. Well, listeners, we want to hear from you. You can tweet us, email us, or call us at 915-996-1699 or email us at info at archaeopolitics.com. If you use your voicemail or email or tweet, we'll send you some stickers. And they are pretty awesome. If we do say so ourselves. Adriana, tell me, what media have you been consuming lately? All right, so I just watched this past weekend uh, the Netflix documentary Icarus, and it is fucking fantastic. I'm not a person who's into sports by any means, and this uh, documentary focuses on doping in sports. And it just, like, untangles this really big uh, doping mechanism in sports, specifically uh, cycling and Olympic sports. Um, That is just a fascinating watch, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since then. What about you, Erin? Wow. Okay. Icarus. So that's one that I'm going to put on my list to check out this week. Um, so I've actually been consuming an app called Duolingo. I am trying desperately to learn Spanish and Polish, and I'm also going about that simultaneously, which I would not advise to listeners. They have two very disparate languages and you will definitely sound like an idiot when you confuse the two. Um, but that's what I've been consuming this week. And it's a lot of fun, but I'm a very competitive person with myself, not with others. And so whenever I miss a streak, if I've been doing good and have been checking into the app and practicing my languages three days in a row, and then on the fourth day, I I get busy and I miss it. On the fifth day, I lose all my points. And I swear to God, that is the biggest deterrent to me learning these languages and mastering them is my own uh, sense of self-defeat and self-sabotage, frankly. So that's what I've been consuming. You know, that happens to me, too, when I work out. I've been working out, like, consistently, like, three days a week. Day, And then, like, by day four, something happens and I can't work out or I'm too tired or, you know, whatever. And then I'm just defeated for four days when I could could have just, like, picked up and worked out the rest of the three days and just missed one. But I'm just, like, in this cycle of self-loathing and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I am such a failure. This is actually a concept that I was talking to a personal trainer about incidentally, and their response was, it is better to be occasionally good than consistently perfect. And I, I really liked that. And that, that is something that I'm trying to incorporate into all aspects of my life. And it goes back to what you were saying. Exactly. I may fail or drop the ball or miss something, but instead of wallowing, just like picking it back up and being like, okay, I missed that, but it's the next day. And and here I am showing up. So I I appreciate that you brought that up, Adriana. Oh, that's going to be my new mantra. Thank you. (laughs) Totally. Totally.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Akio Politics. That's all we have for today. We'll be back next week discussing the politics of heroism in Chapter 9, The Midnight Duel of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling. Until then, politics managed. Find us online at www.akiopolitics.com. That is A-C-C-I-O-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S dot com, where you can find links to our social media and notes on each episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. Tell all your Potterhead friends about this podcast, unless you totally hate us. You can call and leave us a short voicemail at 915 915- Nine nine six one six nine nine. This episode has been produced by Adriana Wilson and Aaron Barrio. Our logo was created by House Four Hundred Seven at www.house407.store. Our theme music was crafted by the very talented Kayla Sluka, who is also a badass photographer. Check her out at www.treasuredroots.com. Welcome to Akio Politics, a podcast about politics in the world of Harry Potter. I'm Erin. And I'm Adri. And we're two recovering. And we're two. Ah! My bad. It's my bad. Okay. My bad. I have it right in front of me. My bad. Okay. From the top. From the it's top. okay. You can say it if you want. <laughs> no, you say it. It's in the script, Evan. <laughs> All right. Okay. Here we go. There's so much from what you just said that I want to rip off of. So the first being, oh, hang on. My, Michael just got home. Kira's barking. Give me a second. Fucking hell. Someone give me a Kit Kat. I need a break. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Okay. Fuck you, internet gods. Work with me. Work with me. I have something I want to say. <laughs> Let me live. <laughs> Let me speak. Okay, here we go. More gin? Why not? <laughs>